1: And I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go, and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit and disorder. I fear that when I come again my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they have practised. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realise this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak, and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.
0: This is the word of the Lord. Hey, uh, welcome. Uh, so good to be amongst you guys. Uh, Zach's on holidays at the moment. I think he's on a fishing boat or something like that, according to Facebook. Mike's about to go on holidays. Uh, Grant is running some sort of marathon, and so you guys have me this morning. But, so yeah, I've put the timer on. I'll promise to have you out of here before midday. But um, hey, it is an absolute honor to bring God's word uh, to you this morning, and it's such a, a, a heavy, big passage. And um, let's pray. Uh, before we get into it. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who speaks. I thank you that your word is powerful and does not return empty. I pray, Lord, uh, that you would soften our hearts, prepare our minds and our ears, Lord, that we might receive the word that you have uh, for us. Lord, I pray uh, that your spirit will work through me as we um, see what you have to say for us this, to us this morning. And it's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. Amen. Hey, today we reach the end of our Jars of Clay series uh, as we've worked through the last 10-12 weeks of the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, this is a letter written to a church that Paul the Apostle planted. Uh, he went, he lived with these guys for 18 months, um, he preached the word, he discipled them, and he saw a bunch of people come to faith. Uh, this is a church that he loves deeply, as we have seen and continue to see, but it's also a church that's not doing great. You know, since he's left, these super apostles or these false teachers have come. Uh, It's caused some people to doubt Paul himself and his teaching, and we've seen that immorality has kind of crept into the church, and it's been accepted. Um, Paul's been writing this letter to them, calling them back to the truth, and up until now, the question's kind of been asked of him, like, are you the real deal? are you a genuine apostle? And in this chapter, Paul kind of flips the question around and he's asking them, are you the real deal? Are you a genuine Christian? Now he's writing this to a church that we assume have a bunch of Christians in there, right? Like, he, like I said, he planted them. Um, he's probably baptized a bunch of these people. Um, he's shared earlier in the letter how he's bragging about um, their reaction to his painful letter Uh, that led to godly sorrow and repentance, and he's still asking them, are you really a Christian? And I think this morning, the passage asks the same question of us. Are you the real deal? Are you a genuine Christian? And like the Corinthian church, I think there's some amongst us who have been in the faith for a long time. And others who've recently put their trust in Jesus, or others who aren't Christians, uh, they come along because they're asking questions. Maybe they've been dragged along. Maybe they managed to get Taylor Swift tickets, and they think maybe there is a God, or they missed out on Taylor Swift tickets and want a purpose and meaning in life. But either way, I think this question is an incredibly important question, no matter where you're at. Um, But it is odd, right, when you claim to be something... And people look at you and go, really? Like, are you really? Um, Like, I find this question a little bit confronting. I've grown up in the church my whole life, and someone turns around and goes, are you a genuine Christian? I don't know why, it's just a bit jarring. Uh, But it's like that in all walks of life. I remember... um, when I finished uni, my first day at work. So I was 22 year old, I'm a dentist uh, during the week. And so I got in uh, to uni straight out of school. So I was, yeah, 22, it was my first day in private practice. I was excited, right? I was gonna save the world fighting plaque every day of my life. And I saw my first patient and things went brilliantly. Uh, And then the next patient comes in and her name I think was Claire, it's been a little while. and Claire hadn't been to the dentist in about 15, 20 years. And um, she had a massive phobia of needles. What was interesting about this is Claire is a phlebotomist. Does it, you know, what phlebotomist, they're the people that take blood from you. So she's handling massive needles all the time, but absolutely freaked out. And so she just didn't go. And she comes in and she sees me and she just starts freaking out. She's like, you, you can't really be a dentist. Like, you are too young. You are not really a dentist. I'm like, no, no, like, I, I think I am. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've done everything. No, you can't be a dentist. And like, when people are in their phobia state, uh, we get to enjoy this a lot. Like, There's no self-control. So she's like touching my face. Sorry, I won't do it. And was like, you're too young. This can't be. And she has this light bulb moment. And she's like, I'm not your first patient ever, am I? And I've looked at it, I'm like, oh no, I've treated at least one person before you. And I started laughing, so she started laughing, and we kind of moved on. But um, anyway, she survived. Um, Thanks, Sam, that is a great laugh. Uh, But it is is interesting when you're being asked, are you the real deal? Um, So here in this passage, Paul says to these guys in chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So, why is Paul asking this question? I think it's because this question has massive implications, right? It has life and death, eternity with God. Um, these are the stakes we're playing with. And in the passage today, we're going to see how Paul answers the question of him, are you a genuine Christian? And how we can answer that same question ourselves. So we're going to see um, three things, because it's a sermon, you have to have three points. And, um, and the first thing we're going to see is, are you, really, are you the real deal? Are you really a Christian? Do you have sacrificial love for other people? Um, we've read in this whole book and particularly also in this chapter that this is a beautiful picture of a pastor's love for his church. And though we're not all pastors, some of us are, um, we're going to see that this type of love is actually the same type of love that we should be having towards people in our church. Uh, You know, Paul loves these guys so much that he's willing to sacrifice himself for them. Um, he went and he planted the church. He lived with them for 18 months. Uh, then he came back for a second painful visit. Uh, both times, he never asked for any financial support. Uh, pick it up in chapter 12, verse 13. Uh, I think it was just before our reading, actually. It said, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself Did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. He didn't take any money from. And further, he's pursuing them by writing this letter, this third letter, and he's also organizing a third visit. Even as they seem to be going cold towards him, he is staying faithful towards them. In verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Um This isn't like these super apostles that these guys have been attracted towards. This is someone who doesn't want anything from them. Um, He hasn't burdened them financially and he's sticking with them despite the fact that they've been so fickle towards him. His ministry is not about how he's benefiting. It's not about building his reputation or building his own brand. It's actually about wanting to see them built up and restored and... um, in you know, chapter 13, verse 9, uh, he says, it's not even about what they think of him, how they feel about him. Uh, it says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. This is so different to the megachurch pastors that we see falling in the news, right? Or even the small church pastor who's just holding on to power as their church is falling apart around them. This isn't a guy with self-esteem issues. This is a humble, loving pastor uh, and only cares about his people's flourishing for God's glory. And Paul knows that what they think of him ultimately isn't the main game. He knows he has an audience of one, and that is God. He says in uh, verse twelve, uh, chapter twelve, verse nineteen: "Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ, and all for the upbuilding, uh, all for your upbuilding, beloved." Um, my third boy, Noah, um, had massive tonsils and adenoids. Now, he's told me I can share this story as long as I let you know he doesn't have these problems anymore. Um, but like he was like 18 months, two years old, and he'd be asleep, and it just sounded like a middle-aged truckie just snoring along. And so eventually I took him to the ear, nose and throat specialist and... Uh, a specialist looked at him He's like, yeah, we've got to get these things out. And we're like, yeah, yeah we're cool with that, but like, he's horrendous with pain relief. Like, he hates taking pandirol and Nurofen. He fights it to the death. And the surgeon said, don't worry, once the tonsils are out, like, he'll be able to tolerate it better. And don't worry, he'll be in so much pain that he'll let you give him pain relief. And we're like, all right, sure enough. Got them out, and he was in so much pain. Like, he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink. He wouldn't even swallow his own saliva. We had this towel where he would just like go on, and it was all a little bit smelly. But we needed to give him pain relief, right? And we needed to keep him hydrated. So our love for him meant that for the next two weeks, Izzy and I would have to pin him down. So I'd get him like in a chokehold. Izzy puts some meds on, block his nose so he has to breathe, and he'd swallow it. And he just gets so angry at us. And he did not like us in these moments. But we had to do that out of a love for him. And equally, um, in some ways, Paul loves these guys, and he spoke about that in verse 14 in that parental love, that actually your good is the main thing I'm concerned about. It's not about how you feel about me. Um, So what on earth could make Paul um, love these guys like this? Well, what is it that could empower him to do this? Well, this is the same sacrificial love that Paul has experienced from God, right? Right? Remember, he was pursued on the road to Damascus while he was persecuting the church. And um, it's the same God that out of love for his created people humbled himself and entered into history. Have a look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. So this is another letter he wrote to a church Uh, in verse 8. He says, but God shows his love to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul knows that before he earned anything, he actually benefited from Jesus' sacrificial love for him. So Paul's genuine faith in the real Jesus actually flows out into this sacrificial love for other people, right? And so it's no surprise that when the questions flipped on us, you know, are you the real deal? Are you a genuine Christian? The answers are the same for us. Do we have a sacrificial love for other people? Are we, live it, are we able to be, say, you know, I'm willing to spend and be spent for you? You know, it's only knowing God's sacrificial love for us that can actually empower us to love people in that way. And um, it's just a natural response to God's love. But it's also one of those evidences of, are you the real deal? Are you a genuine Christian? Remember when Jesus said, by this all know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you can see in this passage Paul's concern for their love and their unity in chapter 12, verse 20, where he says, For I fear perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, deceit, and disorder. And I know these are nothing you guys will ever see in our church, right? Uh, but he continues in chapter 13, verse 11. In his final greetings, he says, "Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and God of love and peace will be with you." Are you someone that says, "Listen, I love Jesus, but I just don't like the church." You know, uh, I've got my trust in Jesus. I've got he and I are cool, but I just don't want a bar of the church. Well, God says that Jesus is the head of the church, and the church is the body. You can't separate the two, right? And church can be messy, right? It can be messy, but we're called to work through that and love one another. But also that love isn't just restricted to these four walls, right? It's about loving other people in our life and pursuing them for Christ and having a heart for our whole world. And, you know, at different points in my life, I've come along to church more concerned about what I'm going to get out of it and who's going to help me or what's in it for me, right? Like so quickly you can forget God's sacrificial love for me and I, I just sort of turn it in and I don't, I'm do not i not there concerned about how can I build these people up? How can I love other people sacrificially? And I guess the question for us is how are we going sacrificially loving people in our church? How are we going sacrificially loving people that are actually hard to love right here at City on a Hill in Brisbane? You know, I've been part of this church for the past seven years and uh, it has been fantastic and Izzy and I and the kids have just experienced uh, so much of this sacrificial love over the years and we have been encouraged and built up. Uh, One particular example is uh, a couple of times a year, Rod and Cheryl come over to our house. Now, they are very gracious. They realise that we suck at texting back and organising things. And so they pursue us until we pin down a time. They sneak in at about 7, 7.30 with a bunch of ingredients and Chez gets cooking in our kitchen while we're putting the kids to bed. Uh, It is the best gig out. And um, kids go to sleep. We actually get time to sit have an amazing meal together, and and just have really good conversations. And uh, Rod and Cheryl are always so intentional in those conversations to make sure uh, that they are encouraging us in our faith, building us up. And um, we've absolutely loved these times and uh, have been really uh, built up by it. But how how can we as a church continue to show that same sort of sacrificial love? Now, it doesn't have to be coming and cooking ridiculously good dinners in our house. However, if you want to, you are more than welcome, all right? Um, But it could be just as simple as sending a text check in on someone, right? Or, Or catching up for a coffee and actually being intentional in the conversation. Or it could be helping someone move house or like any number of things that we are doing all the time. It's about sacrificially loving those who God has sort of put in front of us. So how do I know that I'm the real deal. How do you know if you're a genuine Christian? So the first thing we've seen is a sacrificial love for other people. Now, the second thing we see, it's pretty heavy, and it is about taking holiness seriously. So let's have a look. Taking holiness seriously actually starts with taking sin in our life seriously, right? Um, Are you the real deal? Are you a genuine Christian? Are you fighting sin in your life? What are you repenting for? Can you see evidence of sanctification in your life? Now, I'm not asking, are you perfect? Because we know that sanctification is slow and we're not going to arrive. But are we repenting of our sin? Look at what Paul says in um, chapter 12, verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that, you have, that they have practiced. And then he continues in chapter 13, verse 7, But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to fail the test." How you live matters. It's not what saves you, but it shows what's going on in your heart. You know, is it the spirit of Christ? Are you pursuing holiness and righteousness? Or are you just making up your own rules? You know, What sins are you fighting at the moment? What have you repented of recently? And if you're drawing a blank at the moment, it might be a good thing to bring to God and ask him to show you what you ought to be repenting of. Um, you know, uh, the longer... I'm a Christian, um, the more I realise the depth of my depravity, right, and how deceitful my heart is. And you can actually see more of your sin, even though we're being sanctified and being made more like Jesus, but we also get clearer eyes to see our sin, and we ought to be always repenting. Now, interestingly, what we see in this passage is a part of sacrificial love that we often overlook, and that is actually loving people enough to take their holiness, seriously. Now that can be awkward, right? Um, Let's have a look at what Paul says. Uh, In chapter 13, verse 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others and I warn them now while absent as I did when present on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of God for we also are weak in him but in dealing with you, we will will live with him by the power of God. He's letting them know that he's willing to call out their unrepentant sin. But have a look at his heart behind this in um, verse 10. It says, For this reason I write these things to you while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. Now reading this in our culture at the moment, uh, it feels really countercultural cultural and jarring, right? Like, what happened to you do you boo? You know, we're told that whatever seems good to you, do it. If you've got an impulse, go for it. Um, you choose your own path, and we're told to stay out of the way and not speak into people's lives. How's that going for us, right? Like, as a nation, we've got, like, record depression and anxiety. We waste more money on gambling per capita than anywhere else in the world. And we hold the world record, I was found out, for our cocaine consumption per capita for the world. That is wild, right? Um, Our pursuit of happiness and doing what's right in our own eyes is absolutely not working out for our society, is it? You know, God makes it clear that humans are thriving when we're living for more than just this life, when we are living... Uh, For eternity, that there is more to life than the here and now. And our chief purpose and our joy is actually found in God. We are here to enjoy, you know, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Everything else will ultimately disappoint, even the Taylor Swift concert. And a life lived for ourselves will end in death and God's righteous judgment. Yet, despite knowing these things, this culture does creep into our church, doesn't it? there's that voice in your head, you know, when you see that brother or sister wandering into sin, going down that slippery slope, you're like, oh, it's not my place. You know, it's their life. You know what, like, I don't want to come across as judgy or judgmental, right? Um, Or, you know, someone else will be closer to them, like that someone else can speak up. You know what, the elders will do it. We'll leave it to them. But in Galatians 6, it says, If anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Who should speak up? It is those who are spiritual. That is, anyone that has the Holy Spirit in them. That is, anyone amongst us who is a Christian. Right? That's heavy. And it's serious and scary. Often, often these conversations are super hard. But these passages actually give us some really great guidelines. So who should be speaking up? It should be someone who loves this person in that same sacrificial love that we've seen earlier. You know, that love that wants to see them built up and it's done in the spirit of gentleness. And notice, it says, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. It's like, don't be arrogant. You're no better than this brother or sister that you're about to speak to. Now, do not hear this, please, as a license to be a jerk, or use, um, you know, being right as a hammer and just calling everything out that you see on people. Like, if you're hearing this and you're going, oh, man, I get excited about confrontational conversations and having these hard chats, that's a really good sign that you should not be the person doing it, (laughs) all right? But I'm, I'm actually serious, But you know, if your motivation is sacrificial, pursuing love that wants to see people built up, you'll know that there's heaps of things that are just not worth bringing up, right? But what do you do when you notice someone in your GC keeps rostering work on Sundays and doesn't come along to church, or when they start dating that non-Christian, or that couple move in together and start living in sexual sin, or that person keeps taking these amazing job promotions? but they're never around for their family, and their whole life is about their career. What do you do in those moments? You know, wisdom's needed, like it it is, and sometimes it's great to start a conversation maybe with your GC leader, or one of our pastoral care team, or with one of the elders. But it might just be that you are perfectly positioned, you are the right person to be having this conversation. And it's great to actually have someone praying for you and helping you with some wisdom sort of prepare that conversation. Sometimes you've got to hand it over, but sometimes it actually falls on you. And I know you look for many, many reasons to not be the person, but it's actually on you to care about this person enough, to love them and want to see them restored. You know, eternity's at stake here. Like, look at what Paul said. He would rather they not like him and they be restored in Christ, then they be best mates just slipping, de- slipping down to sort of death and destruction. True love cares, it warns, it acts appropriately, and it acts in love and truth. Having these conversations is hard, okay? Um, we saw in chapter 7 uh, of Second Corinthians that speaking this truth in love is often associated in grief. Now, the prayer is that that grief is only for a time and it leads to repentance, but it is really hard for the person speaking and it's hard for the person receiving. But what we want to pray for is that godly repentance that we saw a few weeks ago. Now, sometimes these conversations don't go well. Um, I often, in my, my experience at least, there's two reasons uh, for these conversations not going well. Uh, the first reason is me. All right. Uh, either the love hasn't come across in having these conversations, Uh, maybe the way I've delivered it has been poor um, and, you know, it hasn't gone well. But there's a second reason, and sometimes it's actually the person you're speaking to. You know, you can speak to them in love, you can present it perfectly, but they harden their heart, and they don't want to hear it, and they get really defensive, And sometimes they'll even turn and hate you. And I've got to say, like in in the time I've sort of served as an elder, that's been the hardest times to go through in church. And you walk away just feeling pretty darn horrible, to be honest. But I'm thankful that we do this, as we saw in chapter 12, verse 19, in the sight of God that we're speaking in Christ. Even though it's hard and sometimes it's painful it's still the right thing to do, right? We're doing it for God's glory and wanting to see these people restored. And we pray that God will use that conversation in time. It's not actually about us. Um, One of my best mates uh, realised the other, a little while ago, that we've been friends for over 20 years now and uh, about 20 years ago, he actually became a Christian, and uh, it was really cool, like God was kind enough to use uh, me sharing the gospel with him as a part of his sort of conversion story. And uh, over the following 18 months, it was so cool to see him come from death to life, his life turned around, and it was a super, super encouraging time. Uh, about 18 months on, he started uh, dating a girl that wasn't a Christian, and uh, he was living in sexual sin, and oh man, I was gutted, like I loved this guy, and i had been so... So encouraged what God had been doing in his life. And I was like, I need to have this conversation with him. Now, 20-year-old me did not have it in the spirit of gentleness. Okay, Um, My heart was in the right place. There was lots of love, but my delivery was poor. And on the back of that conversation, our relationship was actually strained. And interestingly, it was more strained after they broke up six to 12 months later. And eventually, we actually just lost touch for a while. And it was really upsetting, because he was a really, really good mate. But, um, I don't know, like a year later, after we'd sort of last communicated, I get a call from him, and he sort of said, "Listen, I'm, I'm really sorry, like, I... Um I reacted really badly. I shouldn't have pulled away from our reaction uh, from our conversation. And in time, I've actually seen that that conversation you had with me was out of love. It was actually uh, something I really needed. And it was this beautiful moment where our relationship was actually restored—a relationship that I thought was done. And uh, he's been an amazing friend for the last twenty years, a massive encouragement to me in my walk. Uh, and he's actually had the opportunities to have these hard conversations uh, with me. Um, I'm thankful that he was restored, but I'm thankful that God uh, used even my lack of tact and honoured that hard conversation with him. So, how do we cultivate a culture of being able to have these conversations in our church? Well, the first part of it we've seen is um, you know, trying to have this conversation in love, out of that sacrificial love, wanting to see others built up. the other factor is actually our willingness to receive it, right? There's two people in this conversation. Um, You see, if we have an accurate view of ourselves, we know we are saved yet not perfected, right? So it shouldn't come as a huge shock that our heart is deceitful. And often, we are living in sin and we're just justifying it to ourselves. You know, God won't care about this. It's all cool. And we make our own excuses. So when we're called out, how do we react? Is it just straight to defensiveness? Is it a how dare you? Who are you to be speaking into my life? Or do we take a moment and actually hear what's being said and go, man, if you're going to have this conversation, like this is obviously serious. Are we even willing to have the grace to go, wow, you just did that really clumsy. I can see what you're doing here, but that was bad. But I'm still going to hear this because this is an opportunity for God to soften my heart towards him. How we sort of react to these conversations really does matter, and it matters as to whether we're going to let God work in us, and also helps develop that culture amongst us. Um, hey, this is going to come as a real shock to you guys. Last year, I made a mistake. Um, it was only one, so it's all right, but uh, this particular mistake uh, was at church. Um, I showed a complete lack of self-control when I reacted to something, and um, Later that week, I got a call from Mike, and as he started speaking, and he gently brought this up, I just wanted the world to open up and swallow me up. Like I was so embarrassed, and you know what, Like my first reaction was like, let me explain, I'm thinking, I'm gonna, I'll just explain to him, because my emotions were justified, but my reaction was wrong, you know, and um, that sort of overwhelming sense of, I need to justify myself, I need to save face here, I need to try to make this look better was there. But you know what, it was a hard conversation and I don't know if I've ever felt more loved by Mike that he was willing to do that. Like I know that would have been a hard call for him to make. Like he was probably stressing out about it, sort of that that whole day, how's he gonna react? Um, But he cared about me enough that he knew it was a word I needed to hear. And as much of a bitter pill it was to swallow, it was for my good, and I'm thankful for that. So let's be a church that love each other with a sacrificial love, a love um, that is willing to spend and be spent for others, a love that's willing to actually have hard conversations and be able to receive those hard conversations. Now, for some of us right now, you're hearing this and you're feeling convicted, right? Maybe there's a conversation with a brother or sister that you really should have had and you've been avoiding. Or possibly, you're sitting here going, gosh, I reacted really bad when someone lovingly (laughs) brought something up to me and I need to repent of that. Um, This is something I want to encourage you to bring to God. We're having communion this morning, which is actually um, an opportune time to do your business with God, repent of that, and maybe this week is a great week to be able to reach out to that person, whether it's an apology or whether it's actually catching up with someone and having one of these conversations that is motivated by love, wanting to see them restored. So how do you know you're the real deal? How do you know that you're a genuine Christian? So what we've seen is a sacrificial love for people, right? Um, and it's taking holiness seriously. But let's have a look at what the passage says in chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Now, I think as we sit here and hear these words, they're going to land differently, right? Like our answer to this, you know, am I, you know are you going to fail to meet the test? is going to be different for everyone. Now, for some of you, it's a really simple thing. I'm not a Christian. I don't need to to think too hard about this. Um, You know, case closed. It's all done. But I think if you're pushed a little bit, you might concede that there's probably more to life than these last, these next 70 or 80 years, if you get that long, right? And You know, if there is a God and humor me because we're at church at the moment, so say it's the God of the Bible, well, he'd be cool with me, right? Like, I haven't killed anyone, I haven't done anything really wrong. Um, I think God and I would be fine if he exists, and surely he wouldn't see things differently to me, right? But there's a second group here that are going to be sitting here going, you know what, I am a Christian. Actually, Jesus did die for my sins. I am saved, and I'm super thankful for him to be my savior. However, functionally, he is not my king. You know, I'm willing to concede to the bits of the Bible that, um, that I'm okay with, but the things that are going to kind of restrict my life, who I date, my sex life, my greed, my work, whatever it is, I'm just going to kind of do things my own way. And in reality, like these false apostles, you're, you're kind of um, believing in a false Jesus. And actually, like the first group, you're kind of reducing God to be what you want him to be. And essentially, he just becomes a version of you, sees life the way you do. Because, you know, the essence of the human condition is actually um, the sin from the start in the garden of evil, uh, the garden of evil, the garden of Eden, is that we don't believe that God is for our good, right? We believe that things go better when we make up our own rule, and we don't trust God. And we want to figure out what's right and wrong and how we ought to live ourselves. So, Paul says to them, How do you figure out the question? How do you figure out the answer to this? He says, Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So, how do you know if Jesus Christ is in you? Right? That's the obvious question. And the first way first thing you've got to figure out is are you actually believing in the real Jesus, the genuine Jesus? Or are you trusting in the Jesus that you have made up, who kind of goes by your rules? Or has your view of Jesus been distorted by false apostles or false preachers and poor Bible teachers? Because, you know, when we meet the Jesus in the Bible, we realize that we're not actually okay with God, that our sin is offensive to him. That in actual fact, we deserve death and God's wrath and rightful judgment. But we also see that God doesn't leave us in that state. Let's have a look in chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. So earlier on in this book, what Paul has to say. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For your sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what we see is that God in his mercy, in his grace, reconciles us to him through the second person of the Trinity in Jesus. Jesus came and lived the perfect life. He became sin so that we could be his righteousness. He lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live. He died on the cross to pay the price for our hard heart, for our sin, our rebellion. And he rose again three days later victoriously so that at that time we had that great exchange. So God copped our sin and we got his righteousness. Him who knew no sin became sin for us so that anyone who repents, turns from their sin, puts their trust, their faith in Jesus, then gets the spirit of Christ in them. They get the Holy Spirit. That is how we're saved. So in this passage, Paul shows us two key evidences that we've got this Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to hold up here and be really, really clear. So come out of the slumber for just a minute. All right. It is not what you do that saves you. All right? It's not your actions, it is what Christ did for you on the cross. But when we put our trust in Jesus, we do get the Holy Spirit and there is evidence that we have this Spirit in us. And we've seen in this passage that the two evidence of that is actually a sacrificial love for other people and taking holiness seriously. How you live matters. It's not what saves you, but it shows what's going on in your heart. Is it the spirit of Christ? Are you pursuing righteousness and holiness? Or are you making up your own rules? Am I the real deal? Am I a genuine Christian? Well, do I have faith in the real Jesus, his death, his resurrection? And am I seeing evidence of that spirit flowing out into sacrificial love for other people and also taking holiness and our sin seriously? Am I a genuine Christian? It's a big question. And no matter what your answer is, I don't want you to leave today without really wrestling with this. For some, this is an encouraging word of comfort and praise be to God for that. For others, maybe you've just realised for the first time that what you thought was a faith in the genuine Jesus, the real Jesus, isn't. And it's rattled you. And this is a good thing. It is an act of grace from God. And I want to encourage you during communion to come up, um, see someone from our prayer team or myself or Mike, and have a chat about what it looks like to put your faith in the real Jesus. And for others of you, you know you're not Christians. You know you're living your own way and not according to what God wants from you. And you don't want to leave today without putting your trust in Jesus. And if that's the case, again, I want you to come up the front um, during communion, come see the prayer team, see Michael, myself, or even just chat to whoever came along with you. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that in your mercy that you... um, that Jesus came and knew sin who, who had no sin, became sin for our righteousness. Lord, I thank you that uh, you give us your spirit to empower us um, to be um, more like Jesus. I thank you that you don't leave us in our state. And I pray, Lord, uh, that um, as we consider this question, am I the real deal, am I a genuine Christian, that we will ha- look to the real Jesus, the genuine Jesus, and what he has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.